0: This comes from Edom, with garments of glowing colors from Bozrah. This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to say, Why is your apparel red, and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger, and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. And I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. And I trod down the peoples in my anger, and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their life blood
1: on the earth. Who is this who comes from Edom? What do you know about Edom? Descendants of Esau. And uh, what was the relationship generally of the Edomites with the Israelites? Enemies. Seth. Yes, and you remember the, uh, the entire book in the Old Testament devoted to uh, Edomites? That was Obadiah, and uh, there's not much love lost between Edom and Israel. Edom was sort of a symbol for the perennial enemies of God's people and God's purpose. Well, here someone's coming from Edom, and what do his clothes look like? Yeah, they look like glowing uh, from Basra. they kind of look like Edom. Remember what the word Edom means? Red, ruddy. yeah. So these are, he's got the appropriate colored clothes on to come from, from Edom. His apparel's red. In fact, it almost looks like what? It's clothes. Yeah, looks like he's been stomping in the wine trough. You know that picture? You know the um, if if in the ancient world you wanted to get grape juice, you gathered a whole bunch of clusters of grapes and you threw them into a vat, and then people would you know trample on the grapes. And that squeezes out the juice, and you've got a hole in the bottom of the wine trough that you siphon off the juice, you know, and whatever. And uh, so that becomes a really picturesque figure of God's judgment of the wicked, because grape juice kind of looks like what? Blood, it's about the same color. And so you just picture the Lord trampling the grapes and squeezing out the blood of these enemies of his. Uh, and if, if those of you who have you know seen reruns, you've actually seen a picture of that in the High Love Lucy thing that did the uh, you know great great fat. That's kind of helpful just to envision. But so you've got this one who's come from Edom. And his garments are red. They're like the one who treads in the wine press. And the question is, why are your clothes so red? Why do they look like they're stained with blood? And the answer is.
0: Because they are. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. That's exactly where I've been. No wonder that my clothes look like they've been, you know, in the wine trough, because I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I trod them in my anger, trampled them in my wrath, and their life blood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my raiment you can imagine. I mean, you know, when you stomp on grapes, uh, the juice doesn't just, you know, just very gently pass out of the grape. You can imagine, you are know, kind of squirting up and splattering and... And all that. And if, if you really did a lot of stuff, you know, in the, in the wine press, you know, you get your, your clothes pretty well stained with the, the grape uh, juice. And so that, that's what he's picturing. And this is a picture of God's vengeance against his enemies. The day of vengeance was in my heart. <laughs> and uh, the amazing thing to the Lord about this is what? You know, it's such a clear-cut case of being in the right. You'd think lots of people would flock to aiding him in bringing the judgment against these wicked people. But he looked, and there wasn't anybody. There was nobody to uphold, so he did it himself. And uh, so uh, he trod down the peoples in his anger. made them drunk in his wrath. Poured out their lifeblood on the earth. You know that making them drunk goes back, I think, again to that figure of drinking of the cup of the wrath of God. So you've got those two figures, you know, merged together in that. Um, this is this is certainly the classic text on the idea of treading out the the wine press as a judgment figure. That uh, there's a couple of references in the Book of Revelation to that that might be worth noting for a second revelation 14 you've got to, in verse 19 and 20 the grape harvest where the grapes are thrown in the end of 19 into the great wine press of the wrath of god and the wine press was trodden outside the city and the blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles which is a ton of blood that's a huge outpouring of god's wrath then in revelation 19 in verse 13, this picture of Jesus riding out of heaven on the white horse, he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. People often misunderstand that. They often imagine his own blood, or perhaps the blood of his servants that had been killed, but I think not here. Look at the end of 15 of Revelation 19, he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. I think this goes back to this picture in Isaiah 63, His robe has been dipped in the blood of his enemies. God is able to avenge himself against the wicked and to pour out their blood. So this is God pouring out his vengeance on those who are against him. Comments and questions on uh, this first paragraph of chapter 63?
2: Shane. Can you make sense of this in uh, context Maybe, um,
1: maybe Sorry. a couple of things. My problem might be to decide which or what combination. Certainly, as God saves His people and He gives deliverance to His people, one of the angles of that is He judges their you know. I mean, you can't you can't really provide for people if you don't deal with the and with the other communities. Well, God's God enough to do that too. He's not just a God who provides. You know, blessings for his people, but he's also a God who deals with their enemies. If that may be as good as anything. The other side would be to see this as being his dealing with the enemies among his people and breaking judgment upon them. as well. Yes, Tim. Is it necessarily a bad thing that there's no
2: one to help God?
1: It seems like the judgment of the enemies is God's business. Um, e- sort of. Um, it is God's business, but it's our business to share in our sympathy and desire and and eagerness to to praise God for that and to to wish that as well. I think I don't think we ought to just relegate that judgment to God to the extent that we just sort of distance ourselves from. I think we ought to share in that same spirit of the desire for God's will to prevail and the devil's cause to be brought down. So maybe in that sense, it just shows that there's not enough uh, zeal for God among the among Other questions and comments? In this picture, there's not, but in general, there is. That's right. Yeah.
2: That. Uh, let me make sure you can read the imagery right here. So these, you see these evil nations, and they're trampling on and they're, and they're trampling on the, so the the, on the grapes. representing... The Lord trampling on the grapes, representing the people
1: of Sorry.
2: Said, as I'm not alone, my father is with me. That
1: was that was it But he left kind of the idea that the spirit that it wants to take out from God. Yeah, there's certainly a sense in which we need to join with the Lord in opposing sin, opposing false teaching, you know, opposing all that the Lord is against. And uh you know, there's a sense in which we share with the Lord in His judgment. First Corinthians 5. You know, and there's a sense in which we pray that God's enemies will be put down, as in the impregnatory Psalms and so forth. So there's a sense in which we need to join with the Lord, at least in spirit, in His judgment against His enemies. Um, John? Along with that vengeance on mine, say, Lord, we, we want to take our
2: vengeance on that evil. Or we want to fighting ourselves and put them down ourselves because we hate it so much, but it's God's right. So we ought to join in his vengeance, not take our own. Right.
1: Yes. And you look at Jesus, whose vengeance did he seek? Not his own. When he was personally attacked he didn't open his mouth. When they violated God's house, he was angry and threw them out. seven to ten he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. So we go back and this is a little bit sort of a little bit of a difficult section you know how to take not so much this passage but what it leads into but but he goes back and he mentions what the Lord had done for his people. His compassion his loving kindness and and he had hope for his people. You know he said surely they're my people sons who will not do false." Falsely, he, he really—he he, was—he was thinking the best of these people, and and and, and uh, sort of risking himself to support them, to bless them, to show generosity and mercy to them, and, and he came to the point of just loving them so amazingly. Uh, verse nine, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. That is such an amazing attribute of God the compassion and the sympathy of God he loved them so much that when they were hurt he was hurt does God need man is God dependent on man so why would God choose to allow himself to feel our pain that would be uncomfortable for him and yet he voluntarily has decided to, to feel the affliction that we suffer. In, in, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. That, that's, that's just an incredible picture. An incredible blessing. And he sent his angel to save them, and his love, and his mercy, redeemed them, he lived with them, he carried them. He, he, he cared about them so much, and, and so he loved them emotionally. He loved them verbally, and he loved them actively. He took care of them. He provided for them. He, he cared for them. That you think about, you know, the Exodus. You think about the wilderness. You think about the conquest. You think about how God just took care of them. But what happened? They rebelled. They rebelled. And they grieved his Holy Spirit. You can't love people as much as God loves people and not be deeply grieved when they turn and, and, and hurt themselves and you. I mean, you know, sometimes people, people want you to really love and care about them but not be upset when they don't do well. You can't do that. If you love somebody, it's going to hurt you when they are hurting themselves. You can't really love them and be. Um complacent about their sins. You've got to reach after them and care about them and try to bring them to the Lord. You've got to be concerned about their sins if you really love So God was, was grieved by this. And he turned himself to become their enemy and he fought against them. That's a scary thought. I mean, God is passionate. He was afflicted with their afflictions, but he turned and he was their enemy when when they were against, when they rebelled. Comments and thoughts. Question. Verse 8, children who will not lie. Yeah, they thought they were children he could trust, that they'd be reliable. <coughs> sure. Um in verse 7.
2: Um uh, and also defining verse 8. Whenever he said he is he in verse 8, is it also referring to the Yahweh in verse 7? The same person? I would think so. I wonder what the people that believe Jesus is not God is oh uh, well, I
1: don't know, but they call it they've got a lot of Save that from that text. However, I wonder if that passage isn't sort of being alluded to in Ephesians 4:30 when he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. If Ephesians 4 is kind of alluding to that, that might be an argument that it refers to his Holy Spirit. But I, I wouldn't argue that straight. Other comments and questions?
2: I think that this image of, in verse 9, a God that can be hurt with us and also a God that can be hurt by us, it, it, it makes, in a sense, it makes God vulnerable because he loves. If he were impervious to anything that we could do to him or anyone else could do to us, he would not be a God that loves us. But because of his love, he can be hurt with us, and he can be hurt by us. And, and that's
1: the, the beauty of the love story in the Bible. If we think there's a pretty good chance of getting hurt, what do we do? Keep our distance. You don't want to risk loving somebody who might turn around and step on you. Isn't that what we do? Usually, we like to reject people right before they reject us. You know, and, and you, sometimes it's funny. You know, sometimes you see two people who have really nothing, you know, to, to reject each other for, but both of them are afraid the other one's going to reject them. They just kind of keep distancing themselves farther and farther apart. And and interpreting that as the rejection they're looking for, it, you know, we're, we're just so complicated in that. But all of it's self-protective. We're just afraid to risk something. We don't care about them, so we don't love them. We care about ourselves, so we're trying to keep from being hurt. And God is such a wonderful model for us. He knew he'd be hurt, and he loved us anyway. That is incredible, and that's what we need, Logan. I got another question. Um, in verse eight,
2: we're saying something about Jesus. When it says, <laughs> he, I don't know that it necessarily is. Okay,
1: because I was going to say, if, if this whole passage would be the the Church, how does verse 10 fit in After verse 8, and I think this is talking about the Israelites. I think it's talking about the past. So I'd say God became their Savior without specifying one or the other person about. the Amazing love. You know, reflect on that, Think about that. And think about how we are called to love as God loves so we are called to much potential for being hurt because we love. That's really denying ourselves, Chuck.
2: It's hard to love when you don't see examples of love around you, and you know people from from broken families. I mean, I don't come from one, but I mean, it's just you don't see those examples. You don't see that, and you try to tell people to look look at God's love. And, and sometimes that's the only example we really need, and we need to look at that more instead of other
1: people's examples of love, like our parents and stuff. Yeah, so. I think that's true. I mean, I think there is no perfect example of love, but other than the Lord, I mean, He's our model. It is encouraging when we can see others who love like the Lord does. But the thing that really inspires us is the Lord's love itself. Nobody can love like He did. I mean, nobody risks as much as He does. Nobody's as great as He is. Nobody's as as unselfish, unselfish in that and self sacrificing in that. And I mean, God's love just transcends any example we'll ever see in this life. And He's our model, He's our inspiration. Other comments? Yeah, on that point, we sometimes we not only are very guarded, even before that, we, we don't want to love anyone who it's not fun to love. Uh, we don't want to befriend each other when we just. And there's no reason to friend each other. Yeah, you're right. <clears throat> Art 11 to 19. Did
2: his people remember the days of old, of Moses, where is he who arrived out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses who divided the water before them, to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths? Like the horse in the wilderness, they did not stumble. As the cattle would go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven, and see on your holy and glorious habitation, where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me, for you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not recognize us, you, O oh Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from the old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways, and harden our heart from fearing you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people possess your sanctuary for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. We have become like those of whom you have never ruled, like those who were not called on your name.
1: Okay, so they look back on how God had blessed them in the past. Um... They remembered Moses and uh, leading them through the Red Sea and uh, caring for them and, and through Moses guiding them and, and uh, leading them through the wilderness and giving, leading them to, to the land of rest. And they think about all God did to care for his people, overcoming all the obstacles and, and taking care of them under difficult circumstances. And so, they, they, they are they're going back and remembering the manifestation of God's love. And, and this, much of this is really difficult to know how to take. I'm going to take it in one direction. But I'm not absolutely confident of that. And uh, unfortunately, we're going to end up breaking this at kind of the middle of this whole section. But, uh, but really, I, I would say 63-7 uh, at least down to 65.7 it's kind of a unit here and some of this depends on how you take the whole unit but it looks to me like the people are are upset about the situation they're in now they're remembering what God has done in the past how he's led them and, and been merciful to them in the past and so they say in 15 look down from heaven and see from your holy and glory's habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart your compassion are restrained toward me. But you're our Father. You're our Redeemer. You're the one we're trusting. We're the, you're the one. Why, O oh Lord, verse 17, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our hearts for fearing you? Return for the sake of your service, the tribe of your heritage. Your holy people possessed your sanctuary for a little while, our adversaries are trodden to down. I, I suspect this is, you know, set uh, the, the concept of those who were in captivity, who had seen the temple violated by their adversaries. We become like those over whom you've never ruled, like those who were not called by your name. We really become like the Gentiles, like the heathen. You know, it's like God you forgot all your people. You know, you, you just treated us like we were nobody. You you let the, the sanctuary be violated. You, you've done all to take care of us the way you used to rescue us the way you used to lead us the way you, we used to be able to count on you as being our father as being our redeemer uh, I take this as essentially a complaint of the people perhaps from the mentality of the captivity you know, uh, perplexed about why God wasn't there for them why he wasn't taking care of them almost pleading that he would and, and yet you know, just really hurt by the fact that God wasn't still doing the things he used to do. You know, back there uh, under Moses and, and uh, you know, as he led him through the wilderness and all that sort of thing. He, he used to really take care of him, but where is he now? That, that's what I see in this. Comments and questions?
2: Verse 11,
1: um, when the in, in that, or to the the maybe all of the above and more. Maybe he just he, yeah, the Holy Spirit guiding them, directing them, and, and caring for them in this uh, time in the wilderness. I, mean, I don't think we ought to uh, ought to limit the Holy Spirit's activity. To uh, things in the new covenant. There's a passage somewhere, uh, but I may not find it. I think in Nehemiah 9, where he talks about the Holy Spirit being involved in that too, but I don't remember where it is. um. Yes, Tim. Um, Obviously, God is just in his um, decision to punish his people, especially the
2: Babylonian captivity, but we do know that there are people like Daniel, Shaddai, Meshach, and Ben 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 that uh, still have to there, still have to respect. And it seems like this complaint here is not the same as the other ones. It seems there's a confession state. And even though they're hurt and despair and asking God these questions, it doesn't seem like they've completely given up on them. It seems like there's maybe a little a bit of a better part here. Um, and we know, as Ezekiel said, that the sons don't inherit the sins of the father. But we do see sons inherit the problems of the sins.
1: captivity because of, you know, some people would Yeah, and that's the question. Do you interpret this plea as a good plea of people who are really seeking God or as a self-pitying plea of people who really aren't? <coughs> I'm narrowly in the latter camp. I, I think when we look at the whole thing, God's going to end up rebuking them. And and that basically, it's awfully easy for us, when we've gone our own way and been self-willed and not really been concerned about the will of the Lord, to still really be frustrated with God and complain and feel bad that, well, what happened to him? Why didn't he do what he should have done? So, I
2: think verse 17 in particular uh, makes me tend to lean mm-hmm. I still have not changed because since before the knowledge I mean, yes, we're sinners, but verse 17 is saying, you know, part of the reason why we're sinning is kind of your
1: fault if you you a Yes. And that is a trouble in verse, if we should take this as a semi-positive plea. Because surely it wasn't God who caused him straightened his ways or hardened their heart. Uh, but sometimes people almost blame God for that. Uh, and they are saying some good things, and they're not, they're at least turning to God. And they're not totally, uh, you know, not everything they say is terrible, but but I think God's answer would be, you know, where are you? Why was there no man who came when I called? You know, I mean, yeah, it's easy to complain, God, you just aren't doing what you ought to do, but God's doing what he, what he should do. We're the ones who fail, if anyone has failed. <coughs> Out. Well, I was just going to kind of comment on what you said like I you know when we can start
2: to complain or whatever, we gotta, at least we're taking it to the right source and I think it's kind of good to do that because then it kind of opens us up to the rebu- rebuke of God and then it'll show us that you know, we're just not doing what's right or whatever and it'll just kind of wake us up I guess yes other thoughts Mark why doesn't
1: why don't Abraham and Israel go Did you... <laughs> No, I didn't. But it seems to me they may be saying, well, we know that our forefathers wouldn't recognize us in our sins and wouldn't respect us, but you're our father, and so, you know, you've got more of a responsibility to take care of us <laughs> no matter what than what Abraham would to recognize us, or something like that. Grady? Well,
2: could it be that Abraham and his year later, Jacob, are I mean, they're dead. They never actually knew
1: us. You know. Could be, but that seems rather obvious. <laughs> so I don't know. I guess just speak the point that God, you know us. Okay. These people don't be called okay. our fathers. Okay. Could be. Other. Uh,
2: well.
1: Stop here, even though this is not a very convenient place to stop.